You, you know today is October 31st, Halloween or Reformation Day, and it is amazing to me that it was 500 years ago this morning. Really, 500 years ago to the day this morning that, that the Reformation began. That's what historians kind of uh, see as the, the, the trampoline bouncing off point to uh, why we're here today. Uh, really here in the Protestant tradition. We are all Protestants, um, uh, various denominations within that, but we could trace our spiritual heritage, so to speak, back to that morning uh, 500 years ago when a Catholic monk nailed uh, some theses, those of you in the writing class know what, what those are, uh, to a door. Uh, it was not a, a huge statement that he was trying to make. Uh, it was simply a request for public debate. It was what everybody did. It wasn't, he wasn't defacing the Catholic Church door. I asked, um, I've asked friends if they want to go and do that today down at uh, Holy Rosary. Um, it would not be the same thing if we did that. Esther's like, <laughs> we would not actually do that. Uh, but it was different then. It was kind of the, air, the, the, it, the church was in the center of the town, and uh, it was where you would post something, an event, or some kind of uh, um, uh, advertisement. And so that's, that's what he did. He did that 500 years ago this morning. So really, it's, it's a special day uh, to be able to think about this. Uh, and uh, um, uh, certainly, I, I think we could say we wouldn't be here, or at least it wouldn't look like this, if that morning had occurred in a different way uh, or at a different time. Hebrews 13, chapter, or chapter 13, verse 7. You don't have to go there, but, but let me read this to you. Think about it. Um, this is, comes at the end of the letter to the Hebrews, and the author says, Remember your leaders <clears throat> who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. I'm going to read it again. Remember your leaders, the ones who have spoken God's word to you, as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Now, you guys just took your midterm in hermeneutics, and so you would know that this is not uh, necessarily something that is directed toward us and, and our leaders, but I think by implication, we could look at uh, the leaders of our churches, see how they live their lives, see the outcome of their lives, and then obey this command to, uh, to um, imitate their faith. And by extension, I think we can look at other leaders within the church who have spoken the word of God, teach the word of God, look at their lives, and then imitate their faith. And so what I would like to do this morning um, is just give you three snapshots or three lessons I think that we can, uh, we can grasp onto from the life of Martin Luther. And I believe that there are many lessons, I mean, and people that, are way, that would be way better at doing this than me. Um, but Gail said a few months ago when I asked him to speak at this day, he said, why don't you do it? And I took that as a, uh, do you do it. So I'm doing it. Um, the three uh, lessons I think we can take from Martin Luther are these. Number one, uh, take your sin seriously. Take your sin seriously. Number two, labor in the Word of God. And number three, find all of your righteousness in Christ. I'm just going to say those again, and I'm going to repeat them a few times. I, I like sermons that kind of repeat the main things a few times. And so the three are these. Take your sin Seriously, really seriously. Number two, labor in the word of God. Don't just play there, but labor there. And number three, find all of your righteousness in Christ. All of it in Christ. I, I've, read, uh, I've read some things on Luther, and uh, I thought, you know, instead of sort of paraphrasing things and putting it into my own language, which would take hours and hours and hours, 
I'm just going to read a few things that Steve Lawson um, has put on paper. Putin. <laughs> Here's a little bit of Luther's background. He was born in the little town of Eiselben in Germany on November 10th, 1483. He came from a hard-working stock. His father, Hans Luder, was his name. We've, we've anglicized Luther. Hans Luder um, was a copper miner who eventually acquired some wealth through a shared interest in mines and smelting furnaces. His mother, Luther's mother, was a pious but very superstitious Roman Catholic who raised him under the strict disciplines of the church. Martin's stern father groomed him from his early years to become a lawyer. Obediently, Martin pursued an education, first at Eisenach, then at the prestigious University of Erfurt, where he received bachelor's and master's degrees. By the way, he did that in three years, 1502 to 1505. Even in these early years, Luther gave evidence of a formidable mind, equipped with exceptional abilities in study and analysis. His mental command would shine brightly during the Reformation. Despite his father's desire, Martin did not become a lawyer. In July 1505, after one month of legal studies, the 21-year-old Martin Luther, all right, 21 years old, uh, was caught in a severe thunderstorm. Many of you probably know these stories, uh, and, and they've kind of, they kind of, in my mind, are these really epic, uh, uh, sweeping stories. And as you picture G Germany in the 16th century, and this massive thunderstorm, not very, knowing very little about meteorology um, and the, the superstition of the time, uh, he, he found himself in a massive thunderstorm and a lightning bolt knocked him to the ground. Fearful for his salvation, he cried out to the Catholic patroness of minors, Help me, Saint Anna, and I will become a monk. Despite angry opposition from his father, he kept his commitment. Two weeks later, he entered the most rigorous and austere of the seven monasteries in Erfurt, that of the Augustinian Order of Friars. By this dramatic step, Luther set off on a, on a quest to find acceptance with God. <clears throat> Luther was driven, even obsessed, to find salvation through his own efforts. He said, when I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for 15 years with the daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and every other rigorous work, I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. Elsewhere he wrote, quote, I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. I don't know why Lawson doesn't mention this. I guess it's just not in this quote. But he also would beat himself. Uh, he would go up into his room and mercilessly beat himself, thinking that that would purify him, that it would purify his flesh. And he would do it to the point of passing out. Um, that is how uh, um, serious he took uh, what he was learning. However, he quickly discovered that he could not do enough to merit God's approval. He later realized these efforts were driven by a faulty view of God and a faulty view of Christ. Quote, what else did I seek by doing this but God, who is supposed to note my strict observance of the monastic order and my austere life? I constantly walked in a dream and I lived in real idolatry, for I did not believe in Christ. I regarded him only as a severe and terrible judge, portrayed as seated on a rainbow. He began to see that he could never achieve moral perfection before a holy God. This soul-sobering reality caused him to begin to despair of salvation. 
Everyone stick with me. I'm almost to the, to the end of this long quote. In 1507, Luther was ordained as a priest when he celebrated his first mass. I don't know if you've heard this story. He celebrated his first mass as a priest that same year. He was awestruck at the thought of transubstantiation. I think everyone knows what that is. He was awestruck at the thought of it. The Roman Catholic teaching that the Eucharist elements of bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ when they're blessed by a priest, which Luther was. Luther almost fainted with fear. He confessed, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, true God. Holy terror crushed him, only exasperating his struggle for acquittal by God. The next year, Luther began to teach theology as a junior lecturer. At this time, he came under the spiritual influence of Johannes von Staupitz, or Staupitz, teacher of Bible at the university and vicar general of the Augustinian friars. A devoted teacher of Augustinian theology, Staupitz first introduced Luther to God's sovereignty in salvation. As Luther's confessor, Luther would go to this guy, Staupitz. He would go to him as his confessor, and, and he also listened as his young disciple recounted every sin, sometimes for hours at a time. Luther knew that the holy God uh, demanded moral perfection, but he could not attain such a standard. I want to talk to you just a, a, a little bit more. Um, another author picks up on this, and he says, He confessed frequently, often daily, and for as long as six hours on a single occasion. Now, I remember um, in, in my small group at Grace, we have taken time on different occasions to confess our sins to each other. And I can tell you this, my friends who have done that, racking their brain can't go for six hours. But Luther could. Therefore, <clears throat> let's see, every sin must be confessed in order to be absolved. Therefore, the soul must be searched and the memory ransacked and the motives probed. As an aid, the penitent would go through the seven deadly sins. He would go through the Ten Commandments. Luther would repeat a confession. Not only say it once, but he would repeat it. Uh, just to be sure of including everything. He would review his entire life under the confessor until the confessor grew weary and exclaimed, uh, Man, God is not angry with you. You are angry with God. This assiduous confessing certainly succeeded in clearing up any major transgressions. The leftovers with which Luther, Luther kept trotting in appeared to Staupitz to be only the scruples of a sick soul. Look here, he said, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something to forgive, blasphemy or adultery, instead of all of these, the word here is peccadillos, little sins. Come, come with something to confess that's worth confessing, like adultery or something. Don't come and bother me uh, with these little things that you want to confess. Of course, Luther saw the problem uh, a lot more logically than Staupitz did. He said, sins to be forgiven must be confessed, right? Your sins, if you want them to be forgiven, you've got to confess them. To be confessed, they must be remembered. If they are not remembered, then they cannot be confessed. And if they cannot be confessed, then they cannot be forgiven. And so Luther uh, would spend hours at a time uh, trying to confess his sins because he thought that that was the only way that you could be forgiven. My point number one here is take your sin seriously. Martin Luther, of all of the things we could say, whether good or bad about him, you have to admit 
He took his sin very, very, very seriously. He understood his sin. It wasn't some kind of little, yeah, I know I deal with this. But after all, I'm a sinner and and so, you know, I'm not going to address it. No, he was terrified of the consequences of his sin. And the reason uh, that he was terrified is because he understood the scriptures. Would you go in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 with me? Luther knew his sin. He knew what the consequences of sin were. And it really genuinely terrified him. This was a, a good thing. Really good thing. Jesus preached the seriousness of sin. Chapter 5, verse 21, this is our, our, our Lord speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, You've heard it, that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, You moron, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. I assure you, you'll never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. He goes on. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Throw it away. It's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Jesus preached the seriousness of sin. Could you imagine sitting here listening to this? Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, talking about sin in this way. Look, you you guys have never committed murder. I don't know if anybody in here has. But Jesus took it to another level and said, if you've even been angry, you're going to be subject to judgment. Maybe many of you have never committed adultery in the real sense. But Jesus says, if you've even looked at another one of, of the opposite sex with lust, you're guilty of adultery. It takes everything to a new level. And I think Luther really understood this. He understood the consequences of sin. Not only the eternal ones, but he knew the the here and now consequences of sin. Think about this. Um, All of the examples that we have. uh, Matt Tebow sparked this in my memory yesterday. But with Abraham, when Sarah gave Abram um, her maidservant, Hagar. Everybody knows, so Hagar and Abram then had Ishmael. And Ishmael, all of his descendants, um, were they friends with the Israelites? Like all of those people groups that you can't even you know, pronounce as you're reading in, in, in the Kings and the Chronicles, all of those people who are killing Israelites, where did that come from? They all came from Ishmael. All of them came from this one moment when Sarah said, I know what I'll do. I'll take things into my own hands and I'll give Hagar to Abram. And Abram, he didn't complain, right? He didn't say, oh, no, we can't do that. No, he did it. And all of the sin, all of the the death, all of the destruction that happened from just that one thing. Think about another example, David and Bathsheba. 
I, I know that this is used a lot, and it, and it should be used a lot, but just that one thing, he was on his roof, and he saw her, and he thought, I'm going to have her, and I have the power to do it. And then every sin that that led to afterwards, it was just this domino effect. I've heard Pastor Brian say so many times that I love this quote, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. We see it all over the Bible, right? And, and I want to show you one from Paul as well. Go to Acts chapter 23. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen this before, but I don't know. Do, do you guys think of the apostles uh, sometimes as baseball players? I don't know. Maybe that's weird. But I collected baseball cards when I was little. My dad actually just found my baseball card collection like two weeks ago. And I'm going to see what kind of money I can get for him. But uh, if you had the apostles, the disciples, and they were your baseball cards, right? And maybe you could think of it in terms of like the, the ma game Magic or something. I've never played that. But you, you have an event card. Like you flip over an event card and you think, okay, which of my guys am I going to use? Okay, so let me give you the event. The event would be the Sanhedrin. Which apostle would you choose? Which disciple would you choose to address the Sanhedrin? If, you're, if, you, were, and if you and I were thinking first century, man, the Sanhedrin's convening. We want to get one of our guys in there to preach to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and, you know, and, their, and the, the religious elite. We want them to hear the gospel. Who are we going to have? Are we going to have Barnabas? He, he would make some good points. Peter, oh yeah, Peter would be good, but he's a little bit, hmm, who are we going to choose? I would choose Paul. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if I had my baseball cards there, I would say I'd play Paul all day long there at the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees and so forth. Do you know what Paul did? He, he had his opportunity, didn't he? He had his opportunity before the Sanhedrin. Chapter 23, verse 1. Paul looked intently at the Sanhedrin and said, here it comes, right? He's going he's gonna to give them the gospel. People are going to come to faith. It's going to be amazing. He says, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience until this day. But the high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging me according to the law, and in violation of the law, you're ordering me to be struck. And those standing nearby said, do you dare revile God's high priest? Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that it was a high priest, for it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee. And it goes on. And, you, and then you guys know he plays them off uh, against each other. He plays the Pharisees against the Sadducees and so forth, and he gets out of there. But my point here is that this was Paul's opportunity to preach the gospel. And what did he do? He got angry and he cursed the high priest. He sinned. Let that get the best of him. And it ruined the opportunity. If you and I had been on the sidelines, we would have thought, is he doing? What's he doing? Don't say that. Why is he doing that? And my point is that sin right there, the opportunity to preach the gospel to the religious elite of Israel, some of them may have come to faith and he blew it because of his sin. And so we see in David, we see with Abraham, uh, we see with Paul before the Sanhedrin that sin is serious and we have to take it seriously. The other day, uh, to bring this home to us, I was listening on the radio. And I don't know if you guys turn on Pastor Brian every once in a while, 106.3, I think it is, when I'm going to the grocery store. And I turned it on right on the right time. And he's fired up. And he's saying um, something like this. I can't tell you how shocked I am 
to, re- to find out Christians that are in my ministry that are living comfortably with sin, that will not take the time to deal with it. I'm paraphrasing that way. His quote was a lot better than that. But he said Christians need to, must deal with their sin. And so I ask you, Christian, thinking about Luther, thinking about the, the severity of our sin, the consequences of it, are you dealing with it? Are, are you just living it? Are you living in it and it's all right with you? You, you, you sort of know right now you're thinking of that thing that you've been struggling with and, and you're not really putting a whole lot of effort uh, into taking care of it, into getting rid of it, getting it out of your life. Friends, we've got to do that, right? If, if anything, we have to be going to war with these sins. Whether it's pornography or anger or gossip or eating disorders, depression. Let me ask, what better time do you have in your life than to do that now, here, when you're surrounded by people who love you, when you're surrounded by people who know the gospel, aren't going to judge you? Um, get it out. Do it. Do it while you're here. There's, there, the time is perfect. Um, I still want to go on and tell you guys some autobiographical things in that area, but I only have 10 minutes left. <laughs> um, point number, number one, take your sin seriously. Point number two, labor in the Word of God. Labor in the Word of God. Uh, Martin Luther definitely took his sin seriously. But another thing that we have to admit that he did regularly was that he was in the Word of God. The worst thing the Catholic Church, or maybe the best thing depending on how you, you, you view it, that they ever could have done was make him a professor of Bible. You know, you realize he was Catholic through and through. And he was more Catholic after his conversion than we are now. Some of his stuff sounds really Catholic. But they made him a professor of the Bible. And the first thing that he taught was the Psalms. And, he's, and he taught through the Psalms in a year uh, there at the University of Wittenberg. The, the second thing that he, um, that he taught was Romans. Romans, baby. He taught through it. <laughs> he taught through it. Um, and, and it was while he was steeped in Romans. And you, you listen to some of his, the stuff that he writes, and he says, I was desperate to understand what it was saying. I was desperate to understand um, what Paul, the apostle, was talking about. Let me read you uh, a little part here. It's just one sentence, and I love this. He says, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Night and day, I'm going to skip down. Night and day I pondered. Night and day I pondered. You think he's joking? I don't think he was joking. I think night and day he was struggling with this phrase, the righteousness of God or the righteousness from God. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. We'll come to that here in a sec. But Martin Luther, he labored in the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15, um, uh, Pastor Brian, you guys know because I keep using Brian. He's like, I wonder if Brian and if Danny likes Brian. Or if he's discipled me, he's discipled me for years. He said his life verse is this, be diligent to present yourself, approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but who handles rightly the word of truth. I don't know about you guys, but if I had to pick, well, I think that would be my second verse. But if I had to pick a couple verses to say, Lord, let these things just dictate my life. Let these verses dictate my life. Would you agree, wouldn't you echo that this one, be diligent, to present yourself as a proof to God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, who rightly handles the word of truth. Don't you guys want to be like that? 
rightly handling the word of truth. That's what Paul said that Timothy needed to do. Martin Luther understood that. Let me go uh, into the Old Testament and show you a very similar passage. One that um, Kate and I, um, it's very important for us at this point in in our lives. It says, these words that I'm giving you, this is Deuteronomy 6, right after the Shema. Love the Lord God with all your heart and your soul and your mind or your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. These words that I'm giving you, this is Yahweh speaking, right? These words, these words of God, they're to be in your heart. And then here, repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, in your dorm. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you get up and bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When I come into the dorms and I see people that have written scriptures up on the mirrors, I think about this. It's like, praise God that, 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 that people are doing this and that we're being saturated with these. Kate has them on our cupboards. We changed the verses knowing that her parents were coming. We're like, what gospel verses should we put up so that they're bombarded by them? Labor in the Word of God. Paul says it to Timothy. Clearly, Moses taught that to the people uh, of Israel. Luther said this about, uh, about Romans. He said, the epistle, the epistle to the Romans, is the real chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, which indeed deserves that a Christian not only know it word for word, by heart, but deal with it daily as with daily bread of the soul. For it can never be read or considered too much or too well And the more it is handled, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Amen? Point number one, take your sin seriously, friends. We've got to do that. Point number two, what can we learn from Martin Luther? Labor in the Word of God. I'll say the same thing as I did in the first first point. What better time than to create these habits than now? Don't wait. I, I wonder how you are using your quiet times in the morning. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying it from a hip. Point of hypocrisy. When I was a freshman, I didn't always do what I knew Scott Morningstar wanted me to do in my quiet times. But how are you using them? Are you using them to establish this? Get this ingrained into your life? Do. Do. It's perfect. Perfect timing. No better time. Point number three, and the most important maybe. <clears throat> Actually, it is the most important. Find all your righteousness in Christ. Find all your righteousness in Christ. Um, <clears throat> um, Jacob, will you put that up here for, for me? Or Robert? Romans 1.17, when, when Martin Luther was studying this, uh, this was the verse that the Holy Spirit used to convert him. This right here, this phrase, as he labored through this, and I'm, and I'm going I'm to, we'll talk about it here in a sec. Romans 1.17, if you, if you go in your Bible over there uh, to Romans 1.17, <clears throat> And while you're going there, I want to, uh, to read you what Luther said about this. Suddenly, as though a ray of divine light had shone into his darkened heart, Luther grasped the true meaning of the text. The righteousness of God is received as a gift by faith alone. Faith alone. In Jesus Christ alone. Luther confessed, here's his quote, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, In it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he through, he, uh, sorry, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God 
is not that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. It was this verse, um, Romans 1.17, that the Holy Spirit used as he was wrestling with the text. What does it mean? What does it mean? And he was wrestling with his words, the context. It was the context that gave him this insight. Uh, and I want to just show you guys this. Um, <clears> ha <throat> de dikaios ek pisteos zesetai. If we break this down, ha dikaios is the righteous one. Ek pisteos is by faith, or you might say on the basis of faith, or from faith, something like that. And then uh, zesetai, everyone knows the Zoe care ministry, life. Zoe means life. That's the Greek uh, future, zesetai. So the righteous one by faith will live. And Luther put it this way. He said, okay, what does by faith modify? Does by faith modify how one is righteous? Or does by faith modify how somebody will live? And he came, based on the context of Romans, to the, the translation and the interpretation that, no, 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 this was not a verse about how somebody should live. Namely, it is by faith that we shall live. But in fact, it was how somebody is righteous. That a person is righteous by faith. And that's what he argued. Um, <clears throat> let me give you two reasons why I believe uh, that this is a better or clearer translation. Number one, chapters 2 and chapter 3 how, what does Paul do in Romans 2 and 3? He doesn't set up how a person should live, or he doesn't even talk about how people have lived. They talk, he talks about how people are not righteous and how they can't be righteous by the law. So the point in, 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 in Romans chapter 2 and 3 is not to say how somebody should live. Um, it's to show how, somebody, uh, how people are not righteous. And then when he goes into chapter, you guys know 3.10, no one is righteous. No, no, no. Not even one. No one does good. They've, they've all fallen away. Right? You guys remember that? And then he ends his whole, that whole section by saying that nobody, nobody is righteous. So you're all under condemnation. You're all under judgment. And nobody can be declared righteous by observing the law. So we are all in big trouble. And then he says, but, but now, but now there is a righteousness from God which has been revealed. Namely, the righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Would you guys go over to chapter 4 with me? I had way too much stuff to say. <clears throat> so this verse, Luther would take it more like this. But the righteous by faith one. The righteous by faith one will live. Or the one who is righteous by faith. The one who is just by his faith. Not, it's not a verse about how we should live. It's a verse about how people are righteous. Look at chapter 4, verse 3 with me. Paul capitalizes on this. He says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited or imputed to him for righteousness. Verse 6, he says, it wasn't just Abraham who understood this. It was also David. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom, get, get this friends, God credits righteousness. God, the subject, the action imputes 
credits, the thing that he imputes as righteousness. To whom does he do that? The one who believes in Jesus. How? Apart from works. Apart from works. I love this, and, and it makes me just even coming to this almost want to cry. But at the end of Paul's argument, we can't get into it. He chooses Abraham because Abraham was justified before the law, hundreds of years before the Mosaic law, right? If you think timeline-wise, Mosaic law doesn't come in until way after they're in Egypt and so forth. So Abraham is justified before the law, and righteousness is imputed to him before he's even circumcised. This is a bombshell to the Jewish people, right? Abraham's justification had nothing to do with circumcision, had nothing to do with law, and then he draws this conclusion. Look at verse 22, chapter 4, verse 22. Therefore... It was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone. Right? Those words were not just for him. Not just for Moses. They're not just for the Old Testament. They're not just for the first century. They're not for him alone. But also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. I don't know. If this gets to you, uh, uh, like it does to me, but is this your life? Um, Sorry. Do you find all your righteousness in Jesus? Stay stay there. I just want to read a few other passages, and I'm going to be such a hypocrite and go five, five minutes late after I sit in the back and do this to our speakers. 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21. Right, the phrase right before it says this, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. That's what we are as ambassadors of Christ. Our, our message is to be reconciled. We're pleading with people. And then he says this, he made the one who didn't know sin to be sin. So Jesus, who did not know sin, he was sinless. You and I are sinful. He was sinless. He becomes sin. And uh, we become righteous. Right? <clears throat> Luther called it uh, the great exchange. That... that uh, that Jesus takes our sin, right? He lives a perfect life. We live a sinful life. He lives a perfect life, takes our sin. We take his righteousness. That's the gospel, right? So if we were to take three things from Martin Luther's life, friends, really take your sin seriously. Let's go to town. Let's get it out of our lives. Aren't you sick of it? Aren't you tired of it? Doesn't it bring death to your life? Doesn't it bring destruction to your relationships? Whether they're in the dorms or whether they're with your family or whatever. Uh, let's do it. Let's get to town on it. You know what you're thinking about right now. Those ones that you need to get out of your life. Do it. Don't wait. The second thing, labor in the word of God. Goodness sakes, this is so important. I wonder if, if Luther had not done this, where we would be, right? And number three, find all your righteousness in Christ. Let me ask you, where do you find your righteousness? You know, is it in that you're a Bible college student? And, I, and I, I think I can say, I did this. I think there was times where I, my default, I kind of want to go into religion. And, and I wanted to find my standing with God as a Bible college student. Or, or is your righteousness that time when you prayed a prayer? And, and you say, yeah, I'm, I'm justified, I'm right with God because I said these words. Or is your righteousness because you're a church member? Or because you don't drink? Or because you're a virgin? Or whatever. Is that where you find your righteousness? I hope not. I'll, I'll close with this. Go to Romans chapter 10. <clears throat> this is the clearest passage, perhaps, in Romans. <laughs> he, 
He says, brothers, verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them, that is, the, 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 the Israelites, Israel, the nation, is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God. Friends, just look up for a sec. People who have a zeal for God doesn't mean, doesn't make, uh, it doesn't mean anything, right? I see somebody who has a zeal for God. It's like, great, oh, I'm so glad that they have a zeal, zeal for God. That's great. But that doesn't mean that they're saved, right? He says, my heart's desire is for them. It's for their salvation. I can say that they're zealous for God. It doesn't matter. I can testify about them. They have a zeal for God, verse 2, but not according to knowledge. Here's, here's why. Syntax, pay attention. Because they disregarded the righteousness from God and they attempt to establish their own righteousness. They haven't submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Would you like to know if you're a Christian? Would you like to know, <laughs> even now, where you're sitting, would you like to know if you're a Christian? Let me ask you this. Are you trying to establish your own righteousness? Or have you submitted to the righteousness of Christ that comes through faith? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we uh, standing on this day uh, in history, looking back, are so grateful. We're so grateful, not that you could have done this with anybody. You could have done this with a, a simple farm boy who had your scriptures and paid attention to the context. But you did it through Martin Luther, and, and, we're, and we're grateful. As flawed and sinful as he was, we're grateful that you used him, Lord. We don't look to him as, a, as an idol or as some kind of um, extra biblical authority. Um, uh, but we are grateful for him and the things that we can learn from his life. Help us, Lord, those of us in this room, to take our sin seriously. May we not be comfortable in it. And if we are, I pray that your spirit would convict us that we're perhaps not Christians or um, we are, we are uh, in desperate need of change. And so we pray that you do that. Help us to take our sin seriously. I pray, Father, that we are a Bible college and that Bible college students would labor in the Bible, that we would see it as a privilege, that we would stack habit on top of habit on top of habit, that after this year or after these four years here, um, we, would have, uh, we would be different, different people, that we would fill our minds with different things. And I pray, Father that uh, you would help all of us in this room to revel in glory and uh, eat and drink and sleep and dream um, in, in this, this state that Jesus has imputed his righteousness to us, that his life has become ours, that, that not only his life and all of the things that go with it, but that he is ours and that we are his. pray that that would be such a tangible reality to us, Father. Um, in Jesus' name, amen.